Chapter 1 of Henry D. Thoreau. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lily Marie. Henry D. Thoreau by Franklin Benjamin Sanborn. Chapter 1. Birth and Family. There died in a city of Maine, on the river Penobscot, late in the year 1881, the last member of a family which had been planted in New England a little more than a hundred years before, by a young tradesman from the English island of Jersey, and had here produced one of the most characteristic American and New English men of genius whom the world has yet seen. This lady, Miss Maria Thoreau, was the last child of John Thoreau, the son of Philip Thoreau and his wife, Marie de Galias, who, a hundred years ago, lived in the parish of St. Hilaire in Jersey. This John Thoreau was born in that parish, and baptized there in the Anglican Church in April 1754. He immigrated to New England about 1773, and in 1781 married in Boston Miss Jane Burns, the daughter of a Scotchman of some estate in the neighborhood of Stirling Castle, who had immigrated earlier to Massachusetts, and had here married Sarah Urock, the daughter of David Urock, a Massachusetts Quaker. Jane Burns Thoreau, the granddaughter of David Urock, and the grandmother of Henry David Thoreau, died in Boston in 1796 at the age of 42. Her husband, John Thoreau Sr., removed from Boston to Concord in 1800, lived in a house on the village square, and died there in 1801. His mother, Maria Le Galias, outlived him a few weeks, dying at St. Helier in 1801. Maria Thoreau, granddaughter and namesake of Maria Le Galias, died in December 1881 in Bangor, Maine. From the recollections of this Aunt Maria, who outlived all her American relatives by the name of Thoreau, Henry Thoreau derived what information he possessed concerning his Jersey ancestors. In his journal for April 21, 1855, he makes this entry. Aunt Maria has put into my hands today for safekeeping three letters from Peter Thoreau, her uncle, directed to Miss Elizabeth Thoreau, Concord, near Boston, and dated at Jersey respectively, July 1, 1801, April 22, 1804, and April 11, 1806, also a vous de la ville de Saint-Hélier, accompanying the first letter. The first is an answer to one from my Aunt Elizabeth, announcing the death of her father, my grandfather. He states that his mother, Marie Le Galias Thoreau, died June 26, 1801, the day before he received Aunt Elizabeth's letter, though not till after he had heard from another source the death of his brother, which was not communicated to his mother. She was in the seventy-ninth year of her age, he says, and retained her memories the last. She lived with my two sisters, who took the greatest care of her. He says that he had written to my grandfather about his eldest brother, who died about a year before, but had got no answer, had written that he left his children, two sons and a daughter, in a good way. The eldest son and daughter are both married and have children. The youngest is about eighteen. I'm still a widower. Of four children, I have but two left, Betsy and Peter. James and Nancy are both at rest. He adds that he sends a few of our native town. The second of these letters is sent by the hand of Captain John Harvey, of Boston, then at Guernsey. On the 4th of February, 1804, he had sent Aunt Elizabeth a copy of the last letter he had written, which was an answer to her second, since he feared she had not received it. He says that they are still at war with the French, that they received the day before a letter from her uncle and aunt Le Capelain of London, complains of not receiving letters, and says, Your aunts, Betsy and Peter, join with me, etc., According to the third letter, April 11, 1806, he had received by Captain Tussle an answer that he had sent by Captain Harvey, and will forward this by the former, who was going via Newfoundland to Boston. 
He expects to go there every year. Several vessels from Jersey go there every year. His nephew had told him, some time before, that they had met a gentleman from Boston, who told him he saw the sign, Thorough and Hayes there, and therefore thinks that the children must have kept up the name of the firm. Your cousin John is a lieutenant in the British service. He's already been at a campaign on the continent. He's very fond of it. Aunt Maria thinks the correspondent ceased at Peter's death, because he was the one who wrote in English. These memoranda indicate that the grandfather of Henry Thoreau was the younger son of a family of some substance in Jersey, which had a branch in London, and a grandson in the army that fought under Wellington against Napoleon, that the American Thoreau engaged in trade in Boston with a partner, and carried on business successfully for years, and that there was the same pleasant family feeling in the English and French Thoreaus that we shall see in their American descendants. Miss Maria Thoreau, in answer to a letter of mine some years ago, sent me the following particulars of her ancestry, some of which repeat what is above stated by her nephew. Bengal, March 18th, 1878. Mr. Sanborn, dear sir, in answer to your letter, I regret that I cannot find more to communicate. I have no early record of my grandparents, Felipe Thoreau and Marie Le Galias, when a certificate of their baptism in St. Helier, Jersey, written on parchment in the year 1773. I do not know what their vocation was. My father was born in St. Helier in April 1754, and was married to Jane Burns in Boston in 1781. She died in that city in the year 1796, aged 42 years. My sister Elizabeth continued my father's correspondence with his brother, Uncle Peter Thoreau, at St. Helier for a number of years after father's decease. In one of his letters he speaks of the death of Grandmother Marie Le Galias as taken place so near the time intelligence reached from her father's death, in 1801. It was not communicated to her. Father removed to Concord in 1800, and died there of consumption. I do not know what time he immigrated to this country, but I have been told that he was shipwrecked on the passage, and suffered much. I think he must have left a large family circle, as Uncle Peter in his letters refers to aunts and cousins, two of which, aunts Le Capelaine and Pinckney, resided in London, and a cousin, John Thoreau, was an officer in the British Army. Soon after Father's arrival in Boston, probably, he opened a store on Long Wharf, as documents addressed to John Thoreau Merchant appeared to signify, and one subsequently purchased on King Street, afterward called State Street, and now will remark in passing that Henry's father was bred to the mercantile line, and continued in it till failure in business, when he resorted to pencil-making, and succeeded so well as to obtain the first medal at the Salem Mechanics Fair. I think Henry could hardly compete with his father in pencil-making, any more than he, with his peculiar genius and habits, would have been willing to spend much time in such craft. His father left no will, but a competency, at least, to his family, and what was done relative to the business after his death was accomplished by his daughter Sophia. I mention this to rectify Mr. Page's mistake relating to Henry. And now, as I have written all I can glean of father's family, I will turn to the maternal side, of which it appears, in religious belief, that they were of the Quaker persuasion. But I was sorry to see, by good old great-great-grandfather Tillot's will, that slavery was tolerated in those days in the good state of Massachusetts, and handed down from generation to generation. My great-grandmother Tillot married David Orock. Her daughter, Sarah Orock, married Mr. Burns, a Scotch gentleman. At what time he came to this country, or married, I cannot ascertain but I've often been told to gain the consent to it of grandmother's Quaker parents. He was obliged to doff his rich apparel of gems and ruffles, and conform to the more simple garb of his Quaker bride. On a visit to his home in Scotland he died, in what year is not mentioned. 
Before my father's decease, a letter was received from the executor of grandfather's estate, dated Sterling, informing him that there was property left to Jane Burns, his daughter in America, well worth coming after. But father was too much out of health to attend to getting it, and the letter, subsequently put into the lawyer's hands by brother, then the only heir, was lost. It has been said I inherit more of the traits of my foreign ancestry than any of my family, which pleases me. Probably the vivacity of the French and the superstition of the Scotch may somewhat characterize me, which it is to be hoped that the experience of an octogenarian may suitably modify. But this is nothing, here nor there. And now that I have written all that is necessary, and perhaps more, I will close, with kind wishes for health and happiness. Yours respectfully, Maria Thurr. It would be hard to compress more family history into a short letter, and yet leave it so sprightly in style as this. Of the four children of Maria Thurrow's brother, John and Cynthia Dunbar, John, Helen, Henry, and Sophia, the two eldest, John and Helen, were said to be clear thorough, and the others, Henry and Sophia, clear Dunbar, though in fact the thorough traits were marked in Henry also. Let us see, then, who and what were the family of Henry Thurrow's mother, Cynthia Dunbar, who was born in Keene, New Hampshire, in 1787. She was the daughter of Reverend Asa Dunbar, who was born at Bridgewater, Massachusetts, in 1745, graduated at Harvard College in 1767, a classmate of Sir Thomas Bernard and Increase Sumner, preached for a while at Bedford near Concord in 1769, when he was a young candidate newly begun to preach, settled in Salem in 1772, resigned his pastorate in 1779, and removed to Keene just at the close of the Revolution, where he became a lawyer and died a little upwards of forty-two in 1787. He married before 1775 Miss Mary Jones, the daughter of Colonel Elisha Jones of Weston, a man of wealth and influence in his town, who died in 1776. Miss Mary Jones Dunbar long outlived the husband of her youth. In middle life she married a conquered farmer, James Minnett, whom she also outlived and it was in his house that her famous grandson was born in July 1817. Mrs. Minnett was left a widow for the second time in 1813, when she was 65 years old, and in 1815 she sent a petition to the Grand Lodge of Masons in Massachusetts, which was drawn up and endorsed by her pastor, Dr. Ripley of Concord, and which contains a short sketch of Henry Thoreau's maternal grandfather, from whom he is said to have inherited many qualities. Mrs. Minnett's petition sets forth that her first husband, Asa Dunbar, Esquire, late of Keene, New Hampshire, was a native of Massachusetts, that he was for a number of years settled in the gospel ministry at Salem, that afterwards he was a counselor at law, that he was the master of a lodge of free and accepted masons at Keene, where he died, that in the cause of masonry he was interested and active, that through some defection or misfortune of that lodge she had suffered loss both on account of what was due to him and to her, at whose house they held their meetings, that in the settlement of the estate of her late husband, Jonas Minnett Esquire, late of Concord, she has been peculiarly unfortunate, and become very much straitened in the means of living comfortably, that being thus reduced, and feeling the weight of cares of years and of widowhood to be very heavy, after having seen better days, she is induced, by the advice of friends, as well as her, her own exigencies, to apply for aid to the benevolence and charity of the Masonic fraternity. At the house of this decayed gentlewoman, about two years after the date of this petition, Henry Thoreau was born. She lived to see him running about, a sprightly boy, and he remembered her with affection. One of his earliest recollections of Concord was of driving in a chase with his grandmother along the shore of Walden Pond, perhaps on the way to visit her relatives in Weston, and thinking, as he said afterward, that he should like to live there.
Ellery Channing, whose life of his friend Henry is a mine of curious information on a thousand topics, relevant and irrelevant, and who often transversed the old Virginia road with Thoreau before the house in which he was born was removed from its gray knoll to a spot further east, where it now stands, thus pictured the brown farmhouse and its surroundings. It was a perfect piece of our New England style of building, with its gray, unpainted boards, its grassy, unfenced dooryard, the house is somewhat isolated and removed from thoroughfares. On the Virginia road, an old-fashioned, winding, at length, deserted pathway, the more smiling for its forked orchards, tumbling walls, and mossy banks. About it are pleasant, sunny meadows, deep with their beds of peat, so cheerily with its homely, hearth-like fragrance, and in front runs a constant stream through the centre of that great tract sometimes called Bedford Levels, the brook source of the Shawshee River. This is the branch of the Merrimack, as Concord River is, but flows into the main stream through Endover, and not through Balerica and Lowell, as the Concord does. The road on which it stands, a mile and a half east of the Fitchburg Railroad Station, and perhaps a mile from Thoreau's grave in the village cemetery, is a bypath from Concord to Lexington, through the little town of Bedford. The farmhouse, with its field and orchard, was part of Miss Minnett's Widow's Thirds, on which she was living the date of her grandson's birth, July 12, 1817 in which her son-in-law, John Thoreau, was carrying on for her that year. Mrs. Minnett, a few years before Dr. Ripley's petition in her behalf, came near having a more distinguished son-in-law, Daniel Webster, who, like the young Dunbars, was a New Hampshire-born and a year or two older than Mrs. Minnett's daughter, Louisa Dunbar. He had passed through Dartmouth College a little in love with two or three of the young ladies of Hanover, and had returned to his native town of Salisbury, New Hampshire, when he met at Boscowan, nearby, Miss Louisa, who, like Miss Grace Fletcher, whom he married a few years afterward, was teaching a school in one of the New Hampshire towns. Miss Dunbar made an impression on Webster's heart, always susceptible, and, had the face been propitious, he might have called Henry Thur nephew in after years, but the silken tie was broken before it was fairly knit. I suspect that she was the person referred by one of Webster's biographers, who says, speaking of an incident that occurred in January 1805, Mr. Webster at that time had no thought of marrying. He had not even met the lady who afterward became his wife. He had been somewhat interested in another lady, who was occasionally referred to in his letters, written after he left college, but who was not either of those whom he had known at Hanover. But this affair never proceeded very far, and he had entirely dismissed it from his mind before he went to Boston in 1804. In January 1806, about the time of his father's death, Webster wrote to a college friend, I am not married, and seriously am inclined to think I never shall be, though he was then a humble suitor to Grace Fletcher. Louisa Dunbar was a lively, dark-haired, large-eyed, pleasing young lady, who had perhaps been educated in part at Boscowan, where Webster studied for college, and afterwards was a schoolteacher there. She received from him those attentions which young men give to young ladies without any very active thoughts of marriage. But he at one time paid special attentions to her, which might have led to matrimony, perhaps, if Webster had not soon after fallen under the sway of a more fascinating schoolteacher, Miss Grace Fletcher, of Hoptington, New Hampshire, whom he first saw at the door of her little schoolhouse in Salisbury, not far from his own birthplace. A conquered matron, a neighbor and friend of the Dunbars and Thoreaus, heard the romantic story from Webster's own lips forty years afterward, as she was driving with him through the Valley of Assabet. He was traveling along a New Hampshire road in 1805, stopped at a schoolhouse to ask a question or leave a message, and was met at the door by that vision of beauty and sweetness, Grace Fletcher herself, to whom he yielded his heart at once. 
From a letter of Webster's to this conquered friend, Miss Louisa Cheney, I quote this description of his native region, which has never been printed. Franklin, New Hampshire, September 29, 1845. Dear Mrs. Cheney, you are hardly expecting to hear from me in this remote region of the earth, where I was originally a part of Salisbury, the place of my birth, and having continued to own my father's farm, I sometimes make a visit to this region. The house is on the west bank of the Merrimack River, fifty miles above Concord, New Hampshire, in a pleasant valley, made rather large by a turning in the stream, and surrounded by high and wooded hills. I came here five or six days ago, alone, to try the effect of the mountain air upon my health. This is a very picturesque country. The hills are high, numerous and irregular, some with wooded summits, and some with rocky heads as white as snow. I went into a pasture of mine last week, lying head up on one of the hills, and had there a clear view of the white mountains in the northeast and of Ascotney in Vermont, back of Winston in the west, while within these extreme points was a visible scene of, of mountains and dales, lakes and streams, farms and forests. I really think this region is the true Switzerland of the United States. I am attracted to this particular spot by very strong feelings. It is the scene of my early years, and it is thought, and I believe truly, that these scenes come back upon us with renewed interest and more strength of feeling as we find years running over us. White stones visible from the window, and close by, mark the grave of my father, my mother, one brother, and three sisters. Here are the same fields, the same hills, the same beautiful river, as in the days of my childhood. The human beings which knew them now know them no more. Few are left with whom I shared either toil or amusement in the days of youth. But this is melancholy and personal, and enough of it. One mind cannot enter fully into the feelings of another in regard to the past, whether those feelings be joyous or melancholy or, which is more commonly the case, partly both. I am, dear Miss Cheney, yours truly, Daniel Webster. No doubt the old statesman was thinking, as he wrote, not only of his father, at Captain Ebenezer Webster, with a complexion, said Stock, under whom he fought at Bennington, that burnt gunpowder could not change, of his mother and his brethren, but also of Grace Fletcher, and echoing in his heart the verse of Woodsworth, Among thy mountains did I feel the joy of my desire, and she I cherished turned her wheel beside a cottage fire. Thy morning showed thy nights concealed, the bowers where Lucy played, and thine too was the last green field that Lucy's eyes surveyed. It was no such deep sentiment as this which Louisa Dunbar had inspired in young Webster's breast, but he walked and talked with her, took her to drive in his chase up and down the New Hampshire hills, and no doubt went with her to church and to prayer meeting. She once surprised me by confiding to me, as we were walking about Webster in the, in the room where Henry Thur afterwards died, and where there hung an engraving by Rouse of Webster's magnificent head, that she regarded Mr. Webster under Providence as the means of her conversion. Upon my asking how, she said, that in one of their drives, perhaps in the spring of 1804, he had spoken to her so seriously and scripturally on the subject of religion that her conscience was awakened, and that she soon after joined the church, of which she continued through life a devout member. Her friendship for Mr. Webster also continued, and in his visits to Concord, which were frequent from 1843 to 1849, he generally called on her, or she was invited to meet him at the house of Mr. Cheney, where, among social and political topics, Webster talked with her of the old days at Boscowen and Salisbury. Cynthia Dunbar, the mother of Henry Thoreau, was born in Keene, New Hampshire, in 1787, the year after her father died. Her husband, John Thoreau, who was a few months younger than herself, was born in Boston. When Henry Thoreau first visited Keene in 1850, he made this remark, 
cane streak strikes the traveller favourably. It is so wide, level, and straight, and long. I have heard one of my relatives, who was born and bred there, Louisa Dunbar, no doubt, say that you could see a chicken run across it a mile off. His mother hardly lived there long enough to notice at the chickens a mile off, but she occasionally visited her native town after her marriage in 1812. In the kingswoman, Mrs. Laura Dunbar Ralston of Washington, D.C., now living, says, I recollect Mrs. Thoreau as a handsome, high-spirited woman, half a head taller than her husband, accomplished, after the manner of those days, with a voice of remarkable power and sweetness in singing. She was fond of dress, and had a weakness, not uncommon in her day, for ribbons, which her austere friend, Miss Mary Emerson, aunt of R. W. Emerson, once endeavoured to rebuke in a manner of her own. In 1857, when Mrs. Thoreau was seventy years old, and Mrs. Emerson eighty-four, the younger lady called on the elder and conquered, wearing bonnet ribbons of a good length and of a bright color, perhaps yellow. During the call, in which Henry Thoreau was the subject of conversation, Miss Emerson kept her eyes shut. As Mrs. Thoreau and her daughter Sophia rose to go, the little old lady said, "'Perhaps you noticed, Mrs. Thoreau, that I closed my eyes during your call.' I did so because I did not wish to look on the ribbons you were wearing, so unsuitable for a child of God and a person of your years. In uttering this reproof, Miss Emerson may have had in mind the clerical father of Mrs. Thoreau, Reverend Asa Dunbar, whom she was old enough to remember. He was settled in Salem as a colleague of Reverend Thomas Barnard, after a long contest which led to the separation of the first church there, in the formation of the Salem North Church in 1772. The parishioners of Mr. Dunbar declared their new minister admirably qualified for a gospel preacher, and he seemed to have proved himself a learned and competent minister. But his health was infirm, and this fact, as one authority says, soon threw him into the profession of the law, which he honorably pursued for a few years at Keene. Whether he went at once to Keene on leaving Salem in 1779 does not appear, but he was practicing law there in 1783, and also a leading Freemason. His diary for a few years in his early life, a faint foreshadowing of his grandson's copious journals, is still in existence, and indicates a gay and genial disposition such as Mrs. Thoreau had. His only son, Charles Dunbar, who was born in February 1780 and died in March 1856, inherited the gaiety of heart, but also that lack of reverence and discipline which is proverbial in New England for ministers, sons and deacons' daughters. His nephew said of him, he was born the winter of the great snow, and he died in the winter of another great snow, a life bounded by great snows. At the time of Henry Thoreau's birth, Mrs. Thoreau's sisters, Louisa and Sarah, and their brother Charles were living in Concord, or not far off, and there Louisa Dunbar died a few years before Mrs. Thoreau. Her brother Charles, who was two years older than Daniel Webster, was a person widely known in New Hampshire and Massachusetts, and much celebrated by Thoreau in his journals. At the time of his death, I find the following curious entries in Thoreau's journal for April 3, 1856. People are talking about my uncle Charles George Minnett, a sort of cousin of the Thoreau's. Tells how he heard Tilly Brown once asking him to show him a peculiar inside lock in wrestling. Now don't hurt me. Don't throw me hard. He struck his antagonist against his knee with his feet, and so deprived him of his legs. Edmund Hosmer remembers his trick in the barroom, shuffling cards, etc., he could do anything with cards, yet he did not gamble. He would toss up his hat, twirl it over and over, and catch it on his head invariably. He once wanted to live at Hosmer's, but the latter was afraid of him. "'Can't we study up something?' he asked. Hosmer asked him into the house, and brought out apples and cider, and Uncle Charles talked. 
You, said he, I bust the bully of Haven Hill. He wanted to wrestle, would not be put off. Well, we won't wrestle in the house. So they went out to the yard, and the crowd got round. Come, spread some straw here, said Uncle Charles. I don't want to hurt him. He threw him at once. They tried again. He told him to spread more straw, and he burst him. Uncle Charles used to say that he hadn't a single tooth in his head. The fact was they were all double, and I have heard that he lost about all of them by the time he was twenty-one. Ever since I knew him, he could swallow his nose. He had a strong head, and never got drunk, and would drink gin sometimes, but not to excess. Did not use tobacco except stuff from another's box sometimes, which was very neat in his person, was not profane, though vulgar. This was the uncle who, as Thoreau said in Walden, goes to sleep shaving himself, and is obliged to sprout potatoes in the cellar Sundays in order to keep awake and keep the Sabbath. He was a humorous, ne'er-do-weel character, who, with a little property, no family, and no special regard for his reputation, used to move about place to place, a privileged jester, athlete, and unprofessional juggler. One of his tricks was to swallow all the knives and forks and some of the plates at the tavern table, then offer to restore them if the landlord would forgive him the bill. I remember this worthy in his old age, an amusing guest at his brother-in-law's table, where his nephew plied him with questions. We shall find him mentioned again in connection with Daniel Webster's friendship for the Dunbar family. Thoreau's mother had the same incessant and rather malicious liveliness that in Charles Dunbar took the grotesque form above hinted at. She was a kindly, shrewd woman, with traditions of gentility and sentiments of generosity, but with sharp and sudden flashes of gossip and malice, which never quite amounted to ill-nature, but greatly provoked the prim and commonplace respectability that she so often came in contact with. Along with this humorous quality, there went also an affectionate earnestness in her relation with those who depended on her, that could not fail to be respected by all who knew the hard conditions that New England life, even in a favored village like Concord, then imposed on the mother of a family, where the outward circumstances were not in keeping with the inward aspiration. Who sings the praise of women in our clime? I do not boast her beauty or her grace. Some humble duties render her sublime, she the sweet nurse of this New England race. The flower upon the country's sterile face, the mother of New England's sons, the pride of every house where those good sons abide. Her husband was grave and silent, but inwardly cheerful, and a social person, who found no difficulty in giving his wife the lead in all affairs. The small estate he inherited from his father, the first John Thoreau, was lost in trade, or by some youthful indiscretions, of which he had his quiet share, and he then, about 1823, turned his attention to pencil-making, which had by that time become a lucrative business in Concord. He had married in 1812, and he died in 1859. He was a small, deaf, and unobtrusive man, plainly clad, and minding his own business, very much in contrast with his wife, who was one of the most unceasing talkers ever seen in Concord. Her gift in speech was proverbial, and wherever she was, the conversation fell largely to her share. She fully verified the Oriental legend, which accounts for the greater loquacity of women by the fact that nine baskets of talk were let down from heaven to Adam and Eve in their garden, and that Eve glided forward first and secured six of them. Old Dr. Ripley, a few years before his death, wrote a letter to his son toward the end of which he said, with courteous reticence, I meant to have a page filled with sentiments, but a kind neighbor, Mrs. Thoreau, has been here more than an hour. This letter must go in the mail today. Her conversation generally put a stop to other occupations, and when at her table Henry Thoreau's grave talk with others was interrupted by this flow of speech at the other end of the board, he would pause and wait with entire and courteous silence until the interruption ceased and then take up the thread of his own discourse where he had dropped it, 
bowing to his mother, but without a word of comment on what she had said. Dr. Ripley was the minister of Concord for half a century, and in his copious manuscripts, still preserved, are records concerning his parishioners of every conceivable kind. He carefully kept even the smallest scrap that he ever wrote, and among his papers I once find a fragment, on one side of which was written a pious meditation, on the other a certificate to this effect. Understanding that Mr. John Thoreau, now of Clumsford, is going into business in that place, and is about to apply for license to retail ardent spirits, I hereby certify that I have been long acquainted with him, that he has sustained a good character, and now view him as a man of integrity, accustomed to storekeeping, and of correct morals. There is no date, but the time was about 1818. Clumsford is a town ten miles north of Concord, to which John Thoreau had removed for three years, in the infancy of Henry. From Clemsford he went to Boston in 1821, but was successful in neither place, and soon returned to Concord, where he gave up trade and engaged in pencil-making, as already mentioned. From that time, about 1823, to his death in 1859, John Thoreau led a plodding, unambitious, and respectable life in the Concord village, educating his children, associating with his neighbors on those terms of equality for which Concord is famous, and keeping clear, in great degree, of the quarrels, social and political, that agitated the village. Mrs. Thoreau, on the other hand, with her sister Louisa and her sisters-in-law, Sarah, Maria, and Jane Thoreau, took their share in the village bickerings. In 1826, when Dr. Lyman Beecher, then of Boston, Dr. James Todd, then of Groton, and other Calvinistic divines succeeded in making a schism in Dr. Ripley's parish, and drawing off Trinitarians enough to found a separate church, the Thoreaus generally seated, along with the good old Deacon White, whose loss Dr. Ripley bewailed. This contention was sharply maintained for years, and was followed by the anti-Masonic and anti-slavery agitation. In the latter, Mrs. Thoreau and her family engaged zealously, and their house remained for years headquarters of the early abolitionists, in a place of refuge for fugitive slaves. The atmosphere of early purpose, which pervaded the great movement for the emancipation of the slaves, gave to the Thoreau family an elevation of character, which was ever afterward perceptible, and imparted an air of dignity to the trivial details of life. By this time, too, I speak of the years from 1836 onward till the outbreak of the Civil War, the children of Mrs. Thoreau had reached an age in an education which made them noteworthy persons. Helen, the oldest child, born in 1812, was an accomplished teacher. John, the elder son, born in 1814, was one of those lovely and sunny natures which infuse affection in all who come within their range. And Henry, with his peculiar strength and independence of soul, was a marked personage among the few who would give themselves the trouble to understand him. Sophia, the youngest child, born in 1819, had, along with her mother's lively and dramatic turn, a touch of art, and all of them, whatever their accidental position for the time, were superior persons. Living in a town where the ancient forms survived in daily collision or in friendly contact with the new ideas that began to make headway in New England about 1830, the Thoreaus had a peculiar opportunities, above their apparent fortunes, but not beyond their easy reach at capacity, for meeting on equal terms the advancing spirit of the period. The children of the house, as they grew up, all became school teachers, and each displayed peculiar gifts in that profession. But they were all something more than teachers, and becoming enlisted early in the anti-slavery cause, or in that broader service of humanity which plain living and high thinking imply, they gradually withdrew from that occupation, declining the opportunities by which other young persons, situated as they then were, rise to worldly success, and devoting themselves, within limits somewhat narrow, to the pursuits of lofty ideals. The household of which they were loving and thoughtful members, let one be permitted to say, who was once for a time domesticated there, 
had, like the best families everywhere, a distinct and individual existence, in which each person counted for something, and was not a mere drop in the broad water level of that American society tends more and more to become. To meet one of the thoroughs was not the same as to encounter any other person who might happen to cross your path. Life to them was something more than a parade of pretensions, a conflict of ambitions, or an incessant scramble for the common objects of desire. They were fond of climbing to the hilltop, and could look with a broader and kindlier vision than most of us on the commotions of the plain and the mists of the valley. Without wealth or power or social prominence, they still held a rank of their own, in scrupulous independence, and with qualities that put condescension out of the question. They could have applied to themselves, individually, and without hauteur, the motto of the French cavalier, Jésus ne roi ni prince aussi, Jésus le seigneur de Courcy. Nor king nor duke, your pardon, no, I am the master of Thoreau. They lived their life according to their genius, without the fear of man or the world's dread laugh, saying to fortune what Tennyson sings, Turn, fortune, turn thy wheel with smile or frown, with that wild wheel we go not up nor down. Our hoard is little, but our hearts are great. Smile and we smile, the lords of many lands. Frown and we smile, the lords of our own hands. For man is man, and master of his fate. End of chapter 1 Recording by Lily Marie